listeners know I, I love listening to music. Uh, I love my vinyl albums. I don't hold myself out as an expert on rock and roll. You know, I'm no, I'm no Rick Lewis, uh, but I do love it. And it is... Um, so it's just a, a great pleasure for me to welcome to the show Harold Bronson, who is co-founder of Rhino Records. And if you, you know, if you've been a music collector for a while, you know Rhino Records. And he's, he's written a new book. Time has come today. Rock and Roll Diaries 1967 to 2007. Harold, welcome to KOA. It is great to have you. Hi, Ross. I can't see you. Are you going to turn your video on? <laughs> Can I tuck you into it? Oh, uh, you want me to? Yeah, I do. Cause we don't distribute the sure. video anywhere, by the way. It's just so you and I can can see each other while we talk. Awesome. There you are. Uh, yeah, but I don't see you. I just see the. You don't see me. That's I just weird. see. I just see KOA. Oh. Okay. Hang on. All right. This is the beauty of live radio. There All you right. go. Yay. There you go. All right. Look at there that. I asked you to Trump, turn the your way, video on. Uh, <laughs> speaking of which. You know, you don't have to be an expert to, uh, you know, to appreciate and to love music. But one of the things that I tried to do at Rhino uh, with the releases we did and also with my new book is to turn people on to some great music that they might not be familiar with. So I, I've got so many questions for you and we've only got about 10 minutes. So I'm just going to ask you a bunch of stuff and we'll just have some fun. And it's in no particular order, really. Um, but I just got to start with Mogan David and his winos, the best band name of all time. And I don't know how many people will get it or how many people will get that you wanted their label to be Concord, uh, Concord Grape Purple. But where did you get? I mean, I know what Mogan David is, but how did you get that for a band name? And who were your band? OK, um. Well, you know, it was, uh, I love the psychedelic group names like Jefferson Airplane and the Strawberry Alarm Clock. So that's what inspired it. And um, so we were a UCLA band. Most of us wrote for um, the paper. Um, so um, it was kind of, so we played around, not much, but we played around the UCLA area. It was like over a couple of years, but um it was really before the consciousness of the DIY mo movement that happened um, later on in the 70s. So the idea that you could go to a pressing plant and give them your money and they'll press a record for you, mm -hmm. that was kind of novel. People weren't thinking that. So uh, early on, I put out um, two singles on kosher records <laughs> uh, as it relates to you know the, the the color of the label trying to be concord grape like the like mocha david wine and then we did the uh an album uh there was an exploitive beatles album called savage young beatles like the hamburg stuff so i did a parody we dressed up on the cover like the beatles did in 1961 with the leather jackets and um and I called it Savage Young Wino. So originally, you know, the humor was there for whoever got it and mm -hmm. didn't get it. And we did like a live at Leeds type package with inserts, but it was making fun of ourselves. So like the guitar player, Paul Rappaport, his failed music test from UCLA, that sort of thing. Uh -huh. But anyway, among the, among the five members of the band, um, you know, I had a long career in co-founding Rhino, 
Paul Rappaport worked for over 30 years at Columbia Records, mostly as head of FM promotion. Um, Mark Levitin, who my songwriting partner, um, uh, for a long career at uh, Warner Brothers and in, in the licensing area. So my kind of joke was, oh, it's 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 great that we didn't have like a hit record or we were successful because we all had successful careers. And if we, you know, a lot of times, a lot of the performers that I would interview, maybe they had a limited success. Mm-hmm. It always seemed like they were chasing that success, even though they're, you know, those years were well behind them. So uh, I have 40 something kinks albums on vinyl. And I had Dave Davis on my show recently. I've, I'm such a huge Kinks fan that I've had two or three dreams of meeting them and having a beer with a uh, in a bar with them. That, and I read your story about seeing the Kinks in 1969 for a dollar, and I'm just so jealous. Can you give us a sense of what it was like? to see one of these all-time great bands when people were just getting to know of them? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, and yeah, that's uh, that's in the book. Um, so the story with the Kinks, I think it was uh, in 1965 here that, uh, you know, they ran into some problems with the Musicians Union and they couldn't perform in the U.S., uh, uh, for four years. So when they came back in 1969 on that tour, you know, you were just so looking forward to it. You were so appreciative. It was like, you know, you had the Kinks records, you looked at the album covers, mm-hmm. you know, all of this. And then all of a sudden to kind of see them in the flesh, it was just a real experience. But what's interesting about the Kinks, atypical of any other band other than, you know, Ray's great songs is that they were really sloppy. Mm. You know, they were like, you know, out of tune or the scene was out of tune or just sloppy, but they were so much fun. And it was, you know, so you really, it was actually just really enjoyable. So on that 1969 tour, I saw them uh, at the University of Irvine in the gym. And I also <laughs> saw them at the Whiskey A Go Go. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, I saw them probably seven or eight times. Um, the, um, Schoolboys in Disgrace tour was that show was like one of the best shows I ever saw because they they did little skits where they dressed up like schoolboys. Um, there might be a video of that somewhere. Or, um, but I mean, I even saw them, uh, which was thought to be the last show. It was uh, in 1973 in London in Croydon. This is when. Um, Ray was like having a nervous breakdown. His wife left him, and the, and the you know the thought was, oh, this is you know probably going to be the last Kink show. Mm-hmm. And like saw that show, so um, yeah, a big big Kinks fan. Just tremendous. We're talking. By, with by the way, yeah. By the way, I did. Uh, there's a chapter on the Kinks um, in the in my British Invasion, my previous book, and this was. Um, when we reissued the RCA period stuff from them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this deals with, you know, what do you do when you meet or interact with your heroes? Or what do you do when it's on a business level? And um, you, going into this, I was a little bit guarded because of Ray's reputation of being, you know, a, a curmudgeon yeah. and being really cheap. And even in, in time has come today, 
um, Nicky Hopkins, the session player, played on a lot of Kinks records and other people. And he was he were he stopped working with them because they didn't pay him. He said uh, E Ray is so cheap that his uh, ass squeaks when he walks. His ass is so tight. <laughs> He's so tight that his ass squeaks when he walks. So you know, part of the the book is you know not only the story behind the hits, but a lot of these great you know anecdotes that some of these people had. We're talking with Harold Bronson, co-founder of Rhino Records and author of the great new book, Time Has Come Today, Rock and Roll Diaries, 1967 to 2007. Um, I mentioned to you that I have 40-something Kinks albums on vinyl, and uh, I, I probably have about 1,000 albums, and I'm guessing you probably have 10,000 albums or 50,000 albums. Do you love vinyl or are you agnostic about the form that record comes that music comes in and it's just about what's the music well it's more that i mean i think whatever people enjoy uh whatever satisfies them fine but i mean my preference is vinyl because i think the vocals tend to be warmer but by the same token you know i'll play you know uh cds as well mm -hmm. um yeah i mean Speaking of the kinks, I mean, not that we need to go in further, but I mean, you know, I could just go on and on about them because I think they're so great. I don't think I quite have 40 albums like you, but of course, when the Kinks Chronicles came out, mm -hmm. which was the double album, and it was, uh, you know, a lot of material that came out in England, like on singles, but because they hadn't put out anything or the, it, it hadn't come out here, some rare things um, John Mendelssohn, who I talk about in the book in various levels, he put that together, but that actually charted as a reissue. I can't remember if it came out in 1970 or 69, but, you know, for reissue, that was really remarkable. I think it charted in the, like, the 170s or something like that. But for all of us Kinks fans yeah. at the time, you know, that was a revelation. And then, uh, uh, two or three years later, then uh, Warner's put out the uh, Great Lost Kinks album. So it was just really, you know, Ray's songwriting was so great. It was fun to hear that stuff. I've only got about a minute left, and I have so many more questions still, but I'm going to pick one that I think is kind of a short story. And I don't know, I mean, you've written so much in your book that I, I don't know if you remember every story that you've written. But if you remember it, um, I just love the story about why uh, Fleetwood Mac can uh, concert got canceled in 1971 when this one band member couldn't be found. Do you remember this story? Can you share it if you remember it? Sure, very well. So you have to think, you know, most people know of the Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac, but they don't really know of the previous incarnation uh, led by Peter Green, who was just an astonishing guitar player great songwriter and really soulful singer uh so yeah i'd advise anybody to kind of look into that uh, unfortunately i did not see that band play live but the subsequent lineup uh, uh came to los angeles and were scheduled to play at the whiskey a go-go and i was you know i wanted to see him and it was canceled and i found out later that um Jeremy Spencer, the guitar player who was, you know, with the original band, um, he disappeared from his 
Hollywood hotel room. He went went out to like get magazines and never returned, and nobody could find him. He didn't tell anybody. And two or three years later, two excuse me, two or three days later, they tracked him down. Uh, he was uh, he had met this guy on the street, and he became part of this um, religious cult. Um, he changed his name from Jeremy to Johnny. That he shaved his head. And even though he had, you know, he was part of this band and had requirements, he just, you know, forgot all of that. And um, so, yeah, so that week of uh, Fleetwood Mac at the Whiskey was, uh, yeah, canceled. So I saw them the next time they came uh, with um, when Bob Welsh was in the band, who later had a big hit with uh, Sentimental Friend and Great Top Ten Record. I love mm-hmm. that record. But anyway, I never saw, you know, the earlier band. I, I love that story. What a perfect hippie era story. You know, I met a guy on a street corner and joined his cult and shaved my head and changed my name. Dropped out of society. It's just just a perfect capturing of, of that era. Um, Harold, I got to get you back on the show one day if I can. I've just got so much I'd love to talk with you about. But folks, if you love music and rock and roll and history, and there's just so many more stories, literally hundreds more stories that we didn't get to with Harold today about so many, uh, not just famous, but interesting people that he's worked with and encountered. And not always interesting in a positive way, but just interesting. I mean, you got to get Harold's new book, Time Has Come Today, Rock and Roll Diaries, 1967 to 2007. Congratulations on an incredible career, starting off with Mogan David and his winos. Couldn't be a better launching point. (laughs) Thank you so much.